Thanks very much, Mark. Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you. I wasn't quite sure who was here because I was sitting at the front and I didn't look round, but it's very nice to see you. And if you're at home watching, I guess there must be some people who are at home, so hello to you. Let me just organise a little bit here. We're going to continue the... Um, where am I? Click. Continuing this series in Paul's first letter to Timothy in the New Testament of the Bible. And uh, there's two things this talk doesn't need. Uh, one, it doesn't need an introduction because an introduction is designed to convince the hearers that there's something that's relevant and uh, something that's of interest to them. And actually, the topic that we have is of greatly of interest and relevance. It's about gender. Uh, it doesn't need an introduction because it's certainly not irrelevant. I guess if you were to look on your app for the BBC news page, there'll almost certainly be something about gender or transgender on there. It's absolutely relevant. Uh, the matter of man and woman and body, the identity and role and meaning of what it is to be a man or a woman and whether you can actually separate the body from the identity of what it is. That's all a hot topic today. I don't have to introduce it and make you interested. You're already interested. Relationships, sexual relationships, what form they take, the meaning and nature of sex, and whether penetrative sex is nothing more than a casual leisure activity, which is what it seems to be uh, in our culture, or whether there is something actually very deep and profound and even transcendent uh, in uh, the whole matter of sexual relationships. And the matter of gender roles, the role of men. Uh, what, are man uh, what is manliness? What is it to be a man? Uh, is this uh, really nothing but a way of saying power and abuse? And what is the role of women? Um, they're not mere objects for exploitation by men. You think of the Me Too, hashtag Me Too thing. Um, the role of women, what is, it, what is it to be truly feminine, to be truly a woman? And Christian women, I'm very conscious of the Christian women in our congregation here uh, who are thinking, how do I find my way as a Christian woman? I want to please Jesus Christ in this confusing world. For younger women, what should my aim be? Should I be aiming for just to have a career because that's what all the women around me have? Uh, should I be aiming to be independent of men? Uh, the old saying, a man needs... Uh, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. I mean, is that, is that how uh, Christian women should think about men? Or should I be uh, doing, should I actually be thinking, I, I don't want a career, I want to be married, I want to have babies. And, and actually some very well-qualified and very capable women um, actually have said to me, you know, I could have a career, but what I really want is to be married and to have babies. And women in the church, um, Women are equally saved, are of equal value, men and women. Uh, I noticed our, our Bible reading was out at pains to point out that Christ didn't just come to save men as a gender, but men, mankind as a species. Um, and, uh, and then as a church, we have a little bit of a thought about this because up on the wall there is a tablet erected by the Friends of the Railway Mission and members of her family in loving memory of Mrs. George Gates, founder and president of Brighton Railway Mission. So our railway mission was founded and led by a woman. 
And then you think, is, what are we to make of that? Uh, why do we no longer have women elders and pastors? And why do we have women deacons? So there's a lot here about the way... Uh, I don't have to interest you in this subject. You're already interested in it. Uh, that's one thing it doesn't need. It doesn't need an introduction. And secondly, it doesn't need an apology because the Bible does speak clearly about gender. It does say that the human race has been made binary, men and women. He made them male and female. It does talk about the reality of being a man or a woman. And it does say that my body is me, hence the resurrection. Uh, There isn't a separation between the real me and my body. My body is me in a real sense. Uh, The Bible does talk about sexuality, and the Bible does talk about gender roles. And if you want to just put it in a very headline-y way, the Bible does talk about male headship. Now, we need to unpack that a bit, but that's what the Bible does talk about. And I'm not going to apologize for that. And uh, I'm perfectly aware that if you're watching at home or maybe listening to a recording, uh, you may pick up on this and you say, well, I certainly don't believe that. Uh, and uh, I don't agree with it. And uh, if you're watching or listening, you say, well, I don't agree with that. Um, Let me just say what I'm trying to do uh, in this. uh, I may well be setting out a view that conflicts with yours. I don't mean offense or disrespect to you, but uh, it is my task to tell people what the Bible says. That's my task, and I'll be sued for negligence by the Lord Almighty if I don't do that. And so what I'm going to try and do this morning is to set out uh, what the Bible says, I hope truthfully, and I also hope attractively, but I'm going to do that with or without your agreement, Um, and I'm not going to apologize for that. And Christians don't need to apologize for thinking and believing and living differently to the world around. Christians have always been different. They've always been on the margin to some degree or another, and if it's the same today, so be it. It's part of following Christ that you follow him no matter what other people say. And uh, in the end, it's my conviction that Christianity will be on the right side of history, uh, that history will say they were right all the time. Everybody else had got the wrong end of the stick, and it's the Christians who believed what God said who got the right end of the stick. And, uh, uh, and their testimony is that living God's way is actually the most satisfying way and actually the one that enables human beings to flourish the best. Well, that's something we put to the test every day in our lives, isn't it? And my conviction is that uh, if we're looking at the Bible, this is a book written by God. And uh, it's the expert book on humanity. It's the expert book on life. And God knows what structures he put into creation. He made everything. This is the maker's manual. And if you stick to the maker's manual, uh, you won't go far wrong. God says it, and he knows what he's talking about. That's my conviction, and that's why, secondly, it doesn't need an apology, so I'm not apologizing. My plan this morning is um, uh, a couple of things to get us going, so these are the zeroth points. Um, A not-my-job thing, which I'll explain in a moment, and I do need to look into the context of these verses. So if you noticed when they were read, you might have jumped at several things it said. What does that mean? What does that mean? Why does he say that? And I think it's very important to put these words into context. So I'll take quite a little time to put them into context. 
And my main point is going to be that the gospel restores us to the created order. That's going to be my main point. And then uh, we can sort of tease that out in two ways from the text. Uh, power to dress or profess and bless. So, this is, so they might be help you remember it. And then uh, two Ds, discipleship or domineering. So those are the two points more specifically to draw out from the text. So let's get into this then. The text is mostly about the reality of being a woman for God. That's what it says, isn't it? Uh, uh, It starts off saying, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. And then it says, likewise, women to dress with modesty, with decency and propriety. And then it talks about a woman's role in the church. A woman should learn in quietness, etc. It's mostly about the reality of being a Christian woman. Uh, how to think, how to live, um, and how to be a, a woman for God. But Paul is motivated by the particular situation in the church at Ephesus. And I'd like to suggest to you that he speaks this way um, because uh, not just on account of the women, but on account of the men. Uh, and I'd like to suggest to you that if the men were doing their job properly and fulfilling their roles, he might not have to speak to the women the way he speaks to the women. Let's just put that round again. If the men were doing their job, I don't think he would have to speak to the women the way he speaks to the women. And I've got a, a picture here. Have you seen on Facebook or YouTube, these wonderful clips of Not My Job, where um, builders, some, these are videos taken by builders, where a builder comes in to do the floor after the heating engineer has put in the heating, and he's left, a, he's left pipes over the door so that it won't open or something like that, and the, the, the previous guy went away saying, it's not my job to sort that out and he's left a mess for somebody else. And here's a rather uh, lovely picture, isn't it? Somebody's doing a white line down the road, and you can't see There was a branch uh, that has, was laying across the curb there, and rather than lift the branch out of the way, he just painted the line round it. And he's, what he said, it's not my job to lift branches out of the way, and he's just gone round it like that, you see? Um, it, 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 there's, there's loads of really funny things like that on, on YouTube. Not my job. That wasn't my job. I'm not going to do that. And here, I think he's saying to the men, you have a job and make sure you're doing it. So he says in verse 8, guys, are you praying? I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Are you in good fellowship, men? Are you getting on well together and praying together? Are you leading in the matter of prayer? So that if, we, if there's a prayer meeting, the guys are going to be there and they're going to be praying. Uh, or you're going to say, no, that's not my job. And I think he's going to uh, uh, extend that thought to families. Are the men leading and providing in families? Uh, are they being husbands and fathers Uh, and enabling these women who want to have families to have families because the men are standing up saying, I will will take that responsibility rather than saying, not my job. And in the church, that the men are leading and stepping up to take responsibility. That's why I asked Brenda if she would read chapter 3, verse 1, because he's saying, 
I don't want the women stepping up and taking the responsibility. Chapter 3, verse 1, but the elders should, there should be elders, there should be deacons, there should be men taking responsibility. And if they were doing that, this is my suggestion, then he wouldn't have to speak to the women quite the way he does. And just to digress, I, would, I think with Mrs. George Gates, the founder of the Railway Mission, I would think if there had been men stepping up to found railway missions, Mrs. George Gates wouldn't have had to. But bless her, she did, I think, because the men didn't step up and say, oh, that's not my job to do that. Do you see what I mean? So um, that's my sort of zeroth point, not my job. Important for the men to step up. Second thing, context. Now, we're going to spend a little while on context because it's essential to realize he has not written this to Calvary Evangelical Church uh, in 2022. So he is not saying, oh, I know some of you women turn up in braided hair with golden pearls and expensive clothes, and I'm going to say something to you. Because that's not the case. It doesn't quite fit, does it? We're not... I, I just looked around very carefully when we came in, and I... I um, and I thought on Zoom this morning, I thought, is Rosemary wearing earrings? I thought, I'm just better. Yeah, I thought, well, I'd better just be careful what I say. But it's not trying to, it's not specifically pointed at Calvary. But we have to take on board the way it might fit, or the way it does fit, or the implications of it. So let's just think about where it was written. It was written to the church in Ephesus, so there's a map on there, and that is where Ephesus is in what's nowadays Turkey. And uh, there's a picture I got off the internet. I think that's the library in Ephesus. Um, you can look that up on the internet. We know some things about Ephesus, and this will help us to get a context of the sort of world that this church was um, living in, the sort of things that were going on around their heads. So, Paul, uh, I won't ask you to spend a lot of time on this because I've got a lot to say anyway. But in Acts 19 it is, Paul goes to Ephesus. This is where there's the riot about the great goddess Artemis, uh, or Diana I think is her other name, isn't it? Um, uh, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So this is a city in which there was a great goddess sort of presiding over it. And that tells us something straight off, that this is a city where female power is a thing. And I've got a little picture there of our own goddess. Anybody think who that might be? It's Nigella Lawson. Yes, she's the goddess of the kitchen. Uh, you notice the power dressing there, um, the, the um, page that I got it off, I got a picture of her power dressing to be on the telly, and then a, a picture of her going to the shops, which, which she looked completely different. But um, uh, there she is, sort of power dressing, um, posing, as, a, as almost like a goddess, isn't she? In Acts 19, we also see, this is the bit where there were the Jewish exorcists who jumped on the, the guy and said, oh, I know who Jesus is and I know who Paul is, but who on earth are you? So there's a, a, a Jewish presence there in Ephesus. And we also know this is the place where they, uh, people who became Christians had their magic scrolls and they burned them. And there was... Uh, 50,000 drachmas worth, and I can't remember what the calculation was, so a quarter of a million pounds worth of, of scrolls that were, uh, were burnt. So we know that there are weird teachings around in Ephesus, and we know that there's a lot of money around in Ephesus. So all those things uh, are part of the world that they, uh, that they are inhabiting as a church. Okay, so we're looking at context. 
and let's think about the more specific what's going on in the church. And it's worth looking uh, around in the letter to pick up some thoughts about this. So one of the things is that we've already come across, there were false teachers. Now I think, uh, and I didn't look, look this up, but I think it's, it probably says who teach other things, but in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul came straight in on this matter of false teachers, didn't he? I urged you when I came into Macedonia to stay there in Ephesus that you may command certain men not to teach other doctrines any longer, etc., etc. So the, the, there are false teachers. And this is the first thing that Paul mentions about the church. You've got guys in there who are teaching nonsense. And you need to be careful about that. You need to guard against that. And you remember, as John Woods took us through this, he said you, they go on about the law and they distract people from the main points of the gospel. And it's also worth noticing, do have a Bible there and look across at chapter 4, verse 3. It says about uh, deceiving spirits, things taught by demons, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So I think this is part of what's going on. There are teachers who are teaching it is, uh, it is forbidden to marry. Or let's put it the other way around. You can be more spiritual if you don't marry. Uh, and you, if you enlarge on that thought, and I'm going to suggest there are some of these women who've picked on this and they, they become sort of super spiritual women and say, I'm not going to marry for the Lord and, and I'm better than you guys. I'm better than the, the, the women who are married. A little bit like the Roman Catholic celibacy of priests. Yeah? The, 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 in Roman Catholicism, the, the priests who are sort of a cut above ordinary people are supposed not to marry. And, of course, that creates huge problems because they want to marry. And then their sort of sexual desires get messed up all over the place and they can't keep the promise that they've made. I think that's sort of going on here. Denying creation is good. Chapter 4, verse 4. And mangling conscience. That's what it says. Their consciences have been seared. The conscience is God speaking, maybe a little bit muffled, but God speaking inside every human being and saying, this is right and this is wrong. And conscience is a really powerful thing. If you've got a bad conscience, you'll know about it because you, you, you're living thinking, that was wrong. I'm doing something wrong. That's, that matters. And uh, doing something you know inside from God is wrong, but if you do it anyway, you, you damage your conscience, you sear your conscience. It's like searing, is like when you burn yourself, you get a sort of scar. Uh, uh, and uh, the teachers are leading in this direction. I'll just say that again. To do something which you know on the inside is wrong, but doing it anyway. So these are the, the, we've got these false teachers around. And I want us to say that we've got an issue of the women now, um, again, just looking at the context, into chapter 5, verse 3, 
give proper recognition to the women, the widows who are really in need. So there are some women that are deeply worthy of respect and um, are to be given proper recognition. It actually says uh, uh, time, which means um, fear, reverence. Really respect these women. They are godly women. But there are other women in the church who are, uh, chapter 5, verse 11, younger widows. When their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. They bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. I think they've been got at by these teachers. And they said, we're going to be super spiritual. We're not going to get married. We're just going to do the Lord's work. We're never, never going to get married. And then they say, actually, I do want to get married. And they go back on what they promised the Lord in the first place. And it just gets a complete mess. Um, and these women, he says in 5 verse 13, they get into the habit of being idle. They go about from house to house. Not only do they become idlers, but gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. So there's this group of women who, oh, they do no real work. Uh, I, I think they're being supported by the church uh, from funds. They're sort of sponging off the church and they're just creating confusion. Uh, they're going around saying things they ought not to do. And uh, I, won't, I won't try and say everything that the person doing chapter 5 uh, needs to say, but let's just be conscious that there's an issue of the different sorts of women, the different groups of women, and there's some women that are really not being very helpful at all. They're going around just making trouble when they really could just get married and raise a family. Chapter 5, verse 14, um, I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes and give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. So there's a real satanic power going on here, uh, influencing these women. They could get married, but they somehow don't. And um, it just is, is spoiling things for them and for everybody else. And what I want to say is there seems to be a link between these false teachers and some of these women. And if you look at 2 Timothy 3 verse 6, you can see, I, I admit it's not in 1 Timothy, but there seems to be something going on in the context in Ephesus. Where am I? 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 6. These false teachers, these are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Now, all I'm doing is just saying there seems to be a connection here between these false teachers and some of the women. And I don't think that that's beyond... Um, what am I trying to say, uh, beyond reason. I, I think you could imagine a situation where some of the women might be led astray like that, and I think that's part of the context. So I'll try to set out a little bit of the context here into which he's speaking. False teaching, different groups of women, some of them being very, very unhelpful indeed, probably because they've been influenced by the false teachers. So that was by way of introduction, um, Here's my main point. My main point is that the gospel takes us back to creation. The gospel takes us back to creation. The way God made things in the first place is what the gospel takes us back to. The created order. 
Now, uh, so first controversial point here, there is a created order. God made everything and he made it with an order and a structure. And I'm thinking particularly of the way things fit together and the way people fit together. So I've got a little Tetris picture there. That one isn't fitting into place, but these do, don't they? They lock together in certain ways. That's how they're built and they go together in certain ways, and that's sweet and beautiful. And if you're good at playing Tetris, you can you know, win 100 points or whatever it is by fitting together the way they're supposed to fit together. Uh, and my starting point is this, is that the Creator has a way of fitting together. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, as all Christians believe. I don't think you'd be a Christian if you didn't believe in the Trinity. But the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit fit together in a certain way. So the Father begets the Son. The Son doesn't beget the Father. The Father begets the Son. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father. The uh, the Father doesn't proceed from the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. And the Son delights to do the Father's will. It isn't the Son, sorry, it isn't the Father who does the Son's will. Uh, Jesus always says, I delight to do your will, O God. And such is his delight that the Father and Son work together in such perfect harmony that there's a a beauty about that. So there's an order and a structure within the Creator. So it's not surprising that there's an order and structure within the creation that he's made. And you you get uh, from the Father through the Son by the Spirit, for example. And the world that he has made is a world of humans and animals and vegetables and minerals, and he's made a world in which there is such a thing as family and children, and children are to obey their parents. It is not that parents are to obey their children, is it? It isn't, is it? And, and yet you find <laughs> that that can get out of kilter, but it is for children to obey their parents. That's the way it is. That's the way it is between the Father and the Son, in the Trinity. The Father does not obey the Son, the Son obeys the Father. That's the way it is. There's something deep about that and unchangeable about it. It's not negotiable. See what I mean? It expresses itself in different ways, but it is not negotiable. And uh, between male and female there is an order and a way of relating, which we'll say a bit more about in a moment, but Paul refers to that. Adam was formed first, then Eve. He says there was an order to it, and that order signifies a way of relating together. There is male and female. They are equal, but they're not interchangeable. There is a role and a style and a way of fitting in which is particular to male, and a role and a style of fitting in which is particular to female. And Paul's point is that the church, the church family should model this created order. When he says, I don't allow a woman to teach, he's not talking about primary schools. He's talking about the church. He's not talking about learning Greek. He's talking about the way the church goes. Uh, And he's not talking about how it might be with your boss at work. I don't allow, you know, if you might have a female boss at work. I, I worked long time for a, with a female boss at work. He's talking about the church. Uh, and the church should model the way, uh, the church as a family, shall we say, should model the way a family should be. 
And uh, I have a thought from Ellis Potter, dear man, who said in his Labrie sort of way, because if you're thinking, don't like this, it should be totally free, there shouldn't be order, there shouldn't be uh, any sort of fitting in like this. And Ellis, in his uh, very Labrie sort of way, says, total freedom is death. Interesting, isn't it? If you had total freedom, you don't have life and, f- and flourishing. You have death because it's chaotic and nothing matters. So anyway, the gospel takes us back to creation, the created order, which is good. And I'm going to stop on this a little bit and say, in th- this impacts on each of our personal lives, we have been put into a place where one of those Tetris blocks and we're to fit in in a certain way. And that's what God has for us. And that's the way we will get to heaven, by fitting in and walking through our lives in that particular way. That's the way we walk to our ultimate salvation. It isn't just a matter of how we you know, arrange who does the shopping or something like this, the way how we get to heaven, by walking in the way that God has put us as a Tetris block into, into life. Let's look, at, look, for example, at Timothy, chapter 4, verse 16. How is he saved? How is he saved? And you're going to say by believing in Jesus Christ because it's a faithful and true saying that, God, uh, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm going to say amen to that. He's saved through faith in Jesus Christ. But look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 16. Timothy, you're a minister. Pray. Study your scriptures. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Timothy, you will save yourself by doing what God has given you to do. He's put you and your bitters in the Tetris, uh, Tetris puzzle of life is to be a minister. You do what ministers do. Read your Bible, pray, look after people, pray for them, do all the things that ministers do. That's the way you will save yourself. That's your path through life to eternal salvation. And Timothy might be saying, ah, surely there's a better road to heaven than this, praying for all these difficult people, preaching and everybody falls asleep, making mistakes, getting into conflicts. I've got to be confronting these false teachers. Oh, what a drag. Studying much study is a weariness to the flesh. Wouldn't it be just better to find some other way to heaven? And Paul says, no, this is your way to heaven. Do what God has given you to do. You will save yourself through that. And that's why uh, I think, no, I'm not going to say I think, well, I do think it, but that's actually what Paul is saying here in, verse, in our text, verse 15. Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, generally speaking, so I, I don't think that this is, he's talking in his particular context, but he's saying for women, uh, for, for the path to heaven is by following what it is to be a woman. And for many, but not for all, that is via having a husband and a family. For many, but not for all, that is 
by having a husband and a family. That's the way you save yourself. That's the way you're saved. And you're going to say, ah, surely there's a better road to heaven than this. I mean, come on, emptying potties, looking at poo day after day after day, uh, changing nappies, being told when you've got a teenage daughter, mum, I hate you, you're the worst mum in the whole world. Surely there's a better way to heaven than that. And, and Paul says, no, the way you save yourself, Christian woman, is by being a Christian woman. And for many, but not all, that's, that's simply going to be having a family going through all the chores and the repetition and all the hassle, you know, being a taxi service. Well, no, let's start at the beginning, shall we? Going around with this thing inside your tummy for nine months, having this enormous pain of giving birth after nine months, looking after potties and nappies and then being a taxi service to take them all over the place and then wondering where they are, all this sort of thing, that's the way you go to heaven and you'll be saved through that whole process. So be encouraged. Stick to it. Do that knowing, knowing that you're doing God's will and that's, and at the end of that road is a well done good and faithful servant because that's what God called you to do. The gospel takes us back to creation. Chapter 5, verse 14, those younger uh, women who on a point of principle said, I'm not going to do that. Spirituality is not that sort of thing. I'm not going to do that, verse 514. He says, you let Satan in when you say things like that. I counsel these women who can get married, uh, for whom there is the opportunity to get married, not to resist that. And chapter 2, verse 15, women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with, this word will come to in a minute, uh, propriety. Uh, it actually is sort of sound thinking, healthy thinking. So that was my main point. The gospel takes us back to creation and the way God has made us to fit in, that's the way to do it. Don't resist that. Don't say, I, I, but follow that path and that's the way you will be saved. That's my main point. Follow the road that God has put you on and made you for, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're single, whether you're married, whatever that path is, you follow that path. Okay, so let's come specifically to the text and then I'm going to stop. There's um, some specific areas in the text which I have said in the hope that it might be a little bit memorable. Uh, power dress or profess to bless, and then discipleship or domineer. So let's take those one at a time. So here's our goddess, and uh, the power dressing there I took from the internet. These are Nigella Lawson high heels, uh, designed by Stella McCartney. There we are. Just looking. See. I want women to dress modestly, wisely, um, that's a word in there which is the same word as propriety at the end. It means to think healthily. Sophronio or something like that. And that's in that first text. I want women to dress modestly with, I can't remember the Greek, I did look it up, decency, good thinking, not with, this is all money, this stuff, braided hair, gold, 
pearls, expensive clothes. So I'm just imagining that there are some women in the church at Ephesus who really do the power dressing thing. And I guess they probably turn up late for the service. So the, the poor guy trembling at the front is thinking, can we start yet? And he makes a start. And then she comes in, you know, the minute he walks in, she walks in the joint. You could tell she was, you know, that one, real big spender, like that. And everybody turns around, oh, you know, Mrs. So-and-so has arrived here. And there's a sort of hush, and she makes her way up to the front and says, okay, pastor, carry on. You see what I mean? Uh, and and uh, I'm, I'm sort of caricaturing it, but I'm trying to give you the sort of thing that I think he must be talking about. And he's saying, we really, really don't want that. Don't power dress, don't come to church with the attitude of gaining power or gaining attention with the family of God by using feminine powers of adornment. He says, that's not the way for godly women to live and behave in the church of God. There are several words here about beauty, Um, cosmio. Uh, from which I always think this is interested because I'm interested in words, uh, from which we get cosmos and cosmetic. Uh, The cosmos is the beautiful arrangement of the world and cosmetics are things that you put on your face or whatever to make you beautiful. And there's several things here about adornment or dressing beautifully. Uh, And so I think he's recognizing that um, that there is a a thing for women, and I'm going to use this word beauty, uh, men have uh, other ways of being nice. But there's a, a thing about women uh, uses the word glory and beauty. And that's a particular womanly thing. And uh, he says, well, he, he's saying, there is a way of being beautiful for God, which is not in the amount of money you spend on, you know, the gold and the braided hair and the expensive clothes and the Nigella Lawson high heels. So he's making that point. But he says, um, adorn yourself with good deeds appropriate for women who profess uh, reverence for God. Who People are saying, you know, I'm I'm a woman of God. That's the sort of woman I want to be, professing. And he says, there is a, a real beauty in well, he says good deeds, uh, the way you bless people, the, the sort of blessing you are all around you. He says uh, do this with uh, decency and with uh, this word propriety, healthy thinking. And I just say that again, the word for propriety here and in verse, it's somewhere in verse 9, depending on how the NIV translated it. It, it means thinking in a healthy way. When you're choosing what to wear and how to behave and how to relate, just thinking in a healthy way. It's not a feeling word, it's a thinking word. And in chapter 5, verse 10, he says all sorts of good things that um, he gives a list. Uh, These are the widows in uh, chapter 5, verse 9, who've lived a life for God. Uh, They're well known for their good deeds, such as but not limited to, bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, which I presume is what's the, um, not literal. I mean, 
but, but metaphorical, yeah. Just looking out for people's needs and helping them. Washing the feet of the saints. Helping those that are in trouble. Devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. And that, that's... So rather than power dress, profess to bless. You know, being beautiful in those particular sorts of ways. All kinds of good deeds. So that was the power dress and profess to bless. And then the next bit, which I'll take a little bit longer over, is discipleship versus dominance. So I'm now getting into verse 11, where it says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now I'm going to explain this translation because I don't think that can quite give you the right idea. But it says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, she must be silent. And I want to say something about that translation as well. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not the one deceived, but it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Then he goes back to his point. Women, if they follow God's path, will find salvation if they continue in faith and love and holiness with sound thinking. Anyway, let's come to this little bit in verse 11 then. Do learn... A woman should learn. So let's think about the learn. It's a a word linked to the idea of being a disciple. So I'm going to say be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Learn from him. And uh, I think it was John Woods who pointed out that under the Taliban, women are not allowed to learn. In Christianity, women are encouraged to learn. And I presume that learn means learn and grow and develop and mature and become fully, more and more, women of God. And so I'm just going to say, here's something for women to learn. Uh, Women, don't try and be a man. Don't learn how to be a man of God. Learn how to be a woman of God. Men can't be women of God. Only women can be women of God. And if you're a woman, that's your calling, to become a woman of God. Learn how to do that. Let's pick up on these two um, phrases. In quietness and full submission. So let's look at uh, these two words. You might read it and say, this says total silence and exploitation. Please don't read it that way. That's not what it's saying. It might, you might, trigger in your mind, oh, that's what it's saying. It's not what it's saying. So try and unthink that, and let's see what it really says. So let's look at the quietness bit. NIV doesn't help us by saying silent. It doesn't translate the word as silent in other contexts, and I don't know why it decides to do that there. It's in chapter 2, verse 11. It says quietness, same word as silent, and it's, relate, it's also in 2 Thessalonians 3.12, which I'd just like to remind myself of because it's a couple of days since I put this in my notes. 2 Thessalonians 3.12, where it says, We command you and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread you eat. And the word for quietness is there translated, settle down. And I think that's a reasonable translation, just settle down. Uh, It it doesn't mean, "Mm, 
mm, mm. silence like that. It just means don't, oh, no, 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 just don't be jumping up and anxiously interrupting and everything. Just settle down and be calm. Uh, not turbulent, not causing trouble, not, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, hold on, pastor, you can't say that. Look, just settle down a minute. Don't try and grab the steering wheel of the church. Uh, quietness. The twin word for this, it's not exactly the same if I remember correctly, but it's in chapter 2, verse 2 of Timothy, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. There's a the word quiet doesn't mean not saying anything it just means settled you know not turbulent steady and he's saying I want the women to learn in this sort of steady settled way not sort of jumping up and down all the time as it were peace making in the church rather than peace breaking and in the recipe of the church they're the ones that add enrichment rather than stirring in the recipe of the church, the women add enrichment rather than stirring. So there, uh, that's a little, I hope, a helpful thing on the quietness word. Let them learn in, in settledness. And let's look at the word uh, submission. I don't think the NIV helps, or at least I've got full, where is it? Full submission in verse 11. Um, the full is the word for all. He said lots of things are all. He just means, you know, in a, in a really good, um, big, all-encompassing um, way. And the submission word is a word what I think would be better um, understood as fitting into place. So I, what he's saying is learn just steadily, um, peacefully and really do fit into place in the church you know find your god-given place just fit into that rather than struggling against it rather than saying to god no i'm not going to do that all the other women do that i'm not going to do that just just say i want to know what you want me to do and i want to fit into that and be the woman you want me to be so the all i mean translated here full but i think it just means um in in every sort of good way, you can look up those later, all sorts of alls in what he's said. And the, the fitting into place bit. Now let's just focus a little bit on the fitting into place. Adam was formed first, he says, and then Eve. And he's, he, he's not saying this is, no. He is going back to the created order. He's saying this is the way these Tetris blocks were made to fit together. Adam was first formed. Now, I know this is capable of being um, caricatured, and I, I know that you can oversimplify it, but I need to say something, don't I? And let's put it this way. Adam is first formed. He is given the task and the vision to head up humanity and to fill the earth and subdue it and to demonstrate God's loving care into the world and the task is given, first of all, to him. And then you think, poor bloke, he's never going to do this. He'll never manage this. God's given him this huge task. Um, he can't do this. 
I mean, for a start, he can't have any babies all by himself, can he? He can't fill the earth and subdue it. Um, so he needs a helper, poor guy. Uh, it's not good for the man to be alone. And that's the role into which the woman steps. And he, and he says, wow, you know, whoa, fantastic. Um, I'm not alone anymore. Uh, and this is the way those original Tetris blocks fit together. And Paul says that's the way it is. That's, I mean, there's all, all sort of variations on it. It's not an inflexible thing. But that is the fundamental uh, way these Tetris blocks fit together. He has the task and the vision, and she is the helper without which he is helpless and incapable, poor guy. So they need, this team is needed. But he is the leader. He is not the it doesn't dominate, but there is such a thing as leading in a gracious way and in a kind way and in a loving way, which is what the Lord Jesus does, and that's the way the man is to be. And she is the helper. She is not the head, but she is absolutely irreplaceable as the helper. And so here is this fitting into place. It's always difficult to define and uh, um, you know there are permutations, but the fundamental situation is here. Adam was first formed, then Eve. She is the supporter, the nurturer. Uh, if you haven't noticed this, uh, women can see what men can't see. Uh, women notice things that men don't notice. Women understand things that men don't understand, and women can say things that men can't say. She is absolutely irreplaceable, absolutely invaluable but in her right place. And let's bring this to what he says here. I don't allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And I think he's paralleling those things. I don't allow a woman in the church to have a teaching role uh, as, you know, one of the, uh, as a, When he, when he says teaching, he doesn't mean just passing on information. He means teaching, pretty much like preaching, where the person at the front, if it's what God says, says, this, guys, is what God says. You've got to do it. Um, in, in colloquial English, put it in your pipe and smoke it. Um, I don't know whether people say that nowadays. But uh, it, it means, you know, even if you don't like it, this is what God says. You have got to take this on board. That's what this sort of teaching is. And that's why he's saying, I don't want women standing at the front saying to the men, you've got to do this, put this in your pipe and smoke it. He says that's not the way the family ought to run. And it shouldn't be the way that the Christian family runs. And then I'm saying, well, how do we implement that in our own culture? And we do need to, this is a bit more subtle. This is something you discuss. It works out differently in different cultures, different situations. But he's saying, he's forbidding something. He says, I don't want women teaching with authority from the front. I don't want people, uh, women. Um, but leading a discussion Bible study, I think my, my judgment on this, that's different. That is not saying to the people in the discussion Bible study, this is what it says. You jolly well better do it. I think it's more like helping a discussion. We can talk about that this evening. Uh, I, personally, I would say that women are, are very capable of, of leading a discussion Bible study. 
being an elder. An elder role, we don't usually press this button, but it is there in the Bible, is an authority role. And it is not, in my judgment, and I think in the text here, it is not appropriate for a woman to be an elder, having that authority. Uh, being a deacon, in my understanding of it, and generally speaking in our church's understanding of it, is not an authority role so much as a servant role, therefore we do have women deacons. And back in the old days, and I'm just looking around for wearing hats, so... Um, back in the old days, the... Ah, oh, we've got two actually, we've got somebody at the back. Uh, wearing a hat was a... Uh, all the old women... I shouldn't have said that, should I? Um, when I? When I came to the church, there were older women, they all wore hats. And I think it was a cultural thing that women just wore hats... In, I think in Bible times, wearing a hat was a sign of authority, was a sign that you were under authority, that you're being, you know, this is my husband and I wear a hat to show that I'm being respectable. I don't think hats work like that these days. And I can tell you, I talked to Stuart McNary, ex-Holland Road, about this from Northern Ireland. And uh, I said, do you think the Bible tells us that women should wear hats? He says, Phil, I've been in churches where the women all wear hats as a sign of submission and when they get home and talk to their husbands you could see it's complete nonsense <laughs> uh, and uh, so we've got a thing here haven't we if you fo just focus on the external bit you miss what's really going on and um, so let's go for what's really going on it's talking about the way women fit into the church family and the way they fit in at home, uh, respecting their husband. You can, you can, wearing a hat doesn't make you automatically respect your husband, does it? You can respect your husband without necessarily wearing a hat. And I'm, I'm going to say, you know, marriages work in different ways, there's different couples, different dynamics, but the fundamental picture is as I've, I've described. Now let's just take this a little bit further. I'm going to, uh, he says, why don't I allow a woman to teach. Number one, that that's not the way round it should be. And number two, Adam was not deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. He is saying Eve sinned and fell in a different way to Adam. Adam just disobeyed. He did plainly what he was told not to do. Adam, uh, but Eve was beguiled. And it says that also in 2 Corinthians, which we're going to look at in a moment. I mean, men can be beguiled, but the particular thing that he's pointing out, that there's, and I think he's saying that this is a particular temptation that women are prone to in a way that men are prone to other temptations, but women are prone to this. She was beguiled. She was deceived. Now, why was she deceived? Was it because she was less suspicious was it because she was more tender-hearted? Was it because she was less objective? Were the women, uh, I mean, let's sort of bring it over into Ephesus, these women who are um, giving, um, you know, saying to the false teachers, come around and have a cup of coffee, I'd really like to hear what you have to say. Um, 
the, the women who are giving a home to the false teachers, is this because they tend to give way to the heartstrings rather than hard common sense? You know, a man would be a little bit more hard common sense about it. He looks hungry, you know, uh, and, and he's been teaching all over the place. Come on, we'll, we'll, we'll give him... It was, is it because women are more attuned to the charm of the speaker than the content, content of his doctrine? Is that the way that, that the sort of... I don't know. It just, but he, he's saying that there's something going on here which means that I don't want the women standing up and telling the guys what's what. Here's the two Corinthians. I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning... Your minds may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So he says, here's my second reason. First reason, Adam was formed first. Second reason, Eve was prone to deception. And um, I don't, it's not right for the women to be standing up and telling the guys what's what. Here's the summary then. Paul was addressing particular issues in Ephesus. False teaching was there that rejected God and his created order. This got into some of the women who was, I'm saying this, that they super spiritual and deliberately rejected the idea of getting married and having children. And he says, don't deliberately reject that whole idea. They rejected the idea of being humble helpers and wanted to use their sexual power to take over the role of men or reject the value of men's roles as regards family life and in the life of the church. And Paul says to the men, men, you need to step up. You need not to leave a gap that these women are sort of sucked into. Take responsibility. Be praying. Lead in prayer. It is your job to be husbands. It is your job to provide. It is your job to be fathers. It is your job to be spiritual leaders. Don't say it's not my job. Women, be women for God. Whether you're single or married, however you be, became or are single, embrace what God has called you to and be beautiful for God, having faith and love with good thinking. That's how we're saved. That's the road to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ who died for our sins. That's how we are saved and that's how the church, and our church I hope, becomes a foretaste of heaven. Amen. Thanks, Mark.